Amen and amen how great our God is. Well, this morning, uh, we want to take time to pray and uh, point your thoughts and prayers to praying for one of our missionaries here this morning. uh, Our missionary in the spotlight is Dick and Shirley Walker. They are serving the Lord in British Columbia to the carrier Indians through radio broadcasting, Bible translation work, and Bible studies and discipleship. And after much uh, work, uh, the walkers are in the process of distributing the revised Central Carrier Bible that came in a few months ago, as well as the Gospel of John. And they ask us to pray that it will find its way into many homes and bear fruit. Dick and Shirley expressed their overwhelming gratitude for the support they feel from us here at Parkside Bible Fellowship. So thank you for remembering the walkers in your prayers. We'd also like to remember our leaders here in our, in our nation and in our state and in our community. So um, uh, let's go ahead and go to prayer right now. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can join together even through uh, media like this. Lord, we pray that you would do your good work here this morning in our time together. Lord, we thank you that we are able to support and encourage Dick and Shirley Walker. Dear Lord, we pray that you would continue providing for them. Continue protecting them. And Lord, especially using them in your wonderful way in British Columbia. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon their work and upon their family. And Lord, also upon their, uh, their relationship as husband and wife. Thank you so much for the faithfulness of Dick and Shirley over the many years of serving you in British Columbia. So, Lord, we, we ask your blessing on them. Thank you for them, Lord. Please use them in your wonderful way. And, Lord, we, we lift up our president, uh, President Trump and his administration to you. We ask that you would please give them wisdom and guidance in this time. Direct them in their decision-making and help them. Lord, we also want to thank you for our mayor, Uh, Ken Tedford, Lord, bless him and use him. Give him wisdom. We also lift up our sheriff, Richard Hickox. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your good work in his life. And please help these men as they lead in our community. Give them wisdom. And then, Father, we thank you so much for the time we have in your word right now. As Pastor Brennan comes and opens your word to us. Lord, help us to receive your word with a, an eagerness and a, and a humility. And Lord, help us to then go and live it out in our lives through your help and your strength and your spirit's work. Thank you, Lord, again, for how great you are. And there is no one like you. There's no one like our God. Help us, Lord, in glorifying you in our lives. 
We pray for your blessing now in this time of this service. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being with us today in these unusual circumstances. It is uh, Palm Sunday today, and um, our service, uh, our message is not primarily on that topic per se. Uh, We are actually going to be dealing with the book of Exodus, uh, large portions of it anyway. So if you would take your Bible and open to uh, Exodus chapter 19, we're going to read a few verses from there and then also from Psalm 78. So we are in uh, Exodus chapter 19, and I want to read verses 1 through 6 for us this morning. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then from Psalm 78, verses 32 through 35. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in these unusual circumstances, strange times in our world and in our own lives, and we take very great comfort knowing that you have not changed and there is nothing strange and new with you. Father, we approach you because you have given us that right and privilege in Christ. We come before you now and we ask that you would be at work This morning, as we open your word in our various places, as we seek to hear from you, we know that you are not bound and you are not limited by geography, by space, but that you can work in numerous places at once, and you you often do. So we ask this morning that you would be at work in our hearts as your word is opened as we look into particularly the book of Exodus and look at the events there of your interacting with Pharaoh and with Egypt and with Moses and with the people of Israel, 
We ask that you would work in our hearts this morning. May we indeed be humble before you, submitted to you, to hear from you by your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I want to begin this morning with a, uh, a statement, and we'll, um, I'm not going to argue the statement as much. I think everyone, uh, once I say it, will, will understand where it comes from and see that it's consistent throughout Scripture. And the statement is this, in the face of calamity, the faithful respond in repentance. In the face of calamity, the faithful respond in repentance. As we've been thinking about and praying about our, our circumstances that uh, the world is in right now and the, the fear and the uh, uncertainty and, and sickness and death and economic uh, disaster and all those sorts of things, as we think about those circumstances, I would call that a calamity. And I would call that uh, something of... Uh, seems like it could near biblical proportions in, uh, in, in the not-too-distant future. And so how will we respond? How, how should we deal with these, um, these sorts of events? And so I think about the calamity uh, that, that we are pondering, and I think about our, uh, our, our God being a sovereign God over all things, and the fact that we have had the Bible... Uh, here this whole time at Parkside, we've been teaching from the Bible for all these years. And I wonder what has God taught us uh, over the course of these past number of years and that would prepare us to deal with uh, kind of world events that we face right now. And so um, several years ago, we preached through the book of Exodus. It's 40 chapters long, and we did it in about nine months. And sometimes it felt like we were racing, and other times it felt like we were going relatively slowly. But I wondered, as I was reflecting on our circumstances in our church and the fact that we can't even meet in the same building, I was wondering what God might have told us then from his word that would be helpful in our circumstances now. And so my intention is, and this could always change, of course, but the intention is to go back over and look at some of the past series that we have gone through to see what sort of things we learned in those series that should be preparation for us in dealing with our circumstances that we're going through now. And so Exodus is one we covered back in 2017, and I think it's uh, very fitting and very, very appropriate for uh, our time that we face now. Exodus is a very foundational book for the Old Testament. It's very foundational, uh, not just because it's found in the Pentateuch and it's the second book and, and things like that, but because it explains some basic theology that will be further developed later on in the Bible, and particularly theology about who God is and how he relates to his people. And uh, as you read through the Bible, you will see again and again the authors refer back to this event of the Exodus where God takes the nation of Israel and he redeems them, rescues them from Egypt across the Red Sea and then takes them into the wilderness and eventually into the land. That, that Exodus is a theme that occurs again and again in, uh, in not just the Old Testament, certainly there, but in the New Testament as well. And so... Exodus is foundational. I think it might help us in our circumstances. Exodus answers a, a couple of questions. It deals with the question of whom will Israel worship? Will they worship Pharaoh or will they worship Yahweh? And a second question is like it. How are they supposed to worship the Lord, Yahweh, if they are enslaved in the land of Egypt? And so 
my intention today is to go through some, some highlights from the book of Exodus and answer some questions that are brought up that are key to uh, the story of Exodus that will help us understand. First of all, whom, whom will they worship? And thus, whom will we worship? You see, the, the people of Israel start off their time in, uh, in the beginning of Exodus it's not the beginning of the story of Israel. It's not the beginning of the time that they have spent together because, of course, Exodus comes after Genesis. And if you remember the story of Genesis, the people have found refuge. There aren't many of them, but, but uh, Israel and his family have found refuge down in Egypt. And uh, there's, there's a famine and there's struggle and they find refuge. They find protection. They find friendship down in Egypt. And uh, so it's a place of uh, a safe haven for them. But, of course, by the time you get to Exodus chapter 1, you just turn the page from Genesis on into Exodus chapter 1, and you see that the people are actually now enslaved in the land. They've multiplied greatly, but they have been enslaved. And so we read back in chapter 1 of Exodus, verses 13 and 14, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick And in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here, the people are numerous, and there there are very many, probably millions of them, and yet they, they are no longer friends. They are no longer welcome guests in the land, but instead they are slaves. They've been enslaved to Egypt. They've been enslaved to Pharaoh. They're serving him instead of serving Yahweh, whom they are meant to serve. And so that's how the book starts. That's the conditions they're in. They're terrible conditions. Uh, but they're, they're not supposed to be in service to Pharaoh. They're not supposed to be in service to Egypt. They're supposed to be in service to the Lord. And so, of course, by chapter 3, you have uh, this uh, interaction between the Lord and Moses with the burning bush and all of that. And listen to what the Lord tells Moses in chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, so Moses, you're supposed to go gather them. You're supposed to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And when you have gathered them out, when you've taken them out, you've brought the people out of Egypt, then you shall serve God on this mountain. And again and again in the interactions between Moses speaking the words of God to Pharaoh, what does he say to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may serve me, that they may serve me. So you can see that they were intended to serve Yahweh, though they were currently in service to Pharaoh. And there's a principle here that you see all throughout Scripture, starting from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end, that man will always serve and worship. Man will always serve and worship. You see, Israel is set free from their servitude to Pharaoh, but they're not set free just so they can be free. They're not only let out of that trap, let out of that captivity just so they can roam around and do what they want, so they can be free of any service. No, they're, they're set free from the service to Pharaoh and set free from service in Egypt so they can serve the Lord. They will always serve somebody. We will always serve somebody. And so God sets them free from those captors so that instead they can serve Him. We will always worship and we will always serve something 
or someone. We were created that way. We were created in the garden to be servants, to serve there in the garden. And so we will always serve, even if we just end up serving ourselves. We will always serve someone. And so there's this question of whom will Israel worship? Whom will they serve? Will they serve Pharaoh or will they serve Yahweh? And so, of course, the Lord Yahweh sends Moses in to rescue the people, to bring them out so that they can be of service to him. But it isn't long before that service to Yahweh is already in doubt. Already by chapter 14, that that service is called into question, is called into doubt. God is delivering them from their old slavery. They fled the land. And as they're on their way out of the land, they find themselves pinned, backed up against the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army marching towards them on the other side. And they're stuck in the middle. They're caught in the middle. And this is what they say in chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And so they're brought out of the land. They've been rescued. They've been freed. And yet when they get to a place of risk, a place of danger, suddenly they waver in their service to the Lord. And they begin to think, well, actually it would have been better just to stay there. Just to go back to the land and have remained there in service to the Egyptians. And so there's a question for us. There's a question for you. Are you like the Israelites at the Red Sea? When the, when the going gets tough, does your way, your worship begin to waver in the face of that fear, in the face of that conflict? We looked at Job a couple weeks ago and the words, words of Job, uh, really, really stand out here. Are you content to receive good from God, but not evil? Would you serve the Lord for no benefit? Would you serve the Lord if there were no physical comfort, no blessing in it for you? Would you, would you worship and serve the Lord if it meant your own death? That's a, that's a heavy question. That's a heavy question. But are we going to be like Israel when they were backed up against that water, when they were backed up? and caught between a rock and a hard place, are we going to be like that? Will our worship, will our service to him waver in the face of difficulty? But there's a related question to that. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 33, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because we're going to come back and look at chapter 32, which is the incident of the golden calf. But what I want to draw our attention to is what the Lord says and the people's response in the beginning of chapter 33. So, of course, chapter 32 is the golden calf incident. That's when the people have been worshiping in ways that, that uh, God told them not to do. They, they, they create this golden calf and this whole image that we're going to talk about. Uh, but the result is the Lord is very angry with them. And Moses is very angry with them. And they have disobeyed terribly. And so, as a result of that, coming out of that context, we read in chapter 33, The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel 
before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So far, so good. He's telling them, go out and go into this land. I'm going to give this land to you that I promised to your forefathers. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, says the Lord, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. See, this is a related question. The first question that I asked was, when, when the going gets tough, will your worship waver? And this question is a little bit different. This question is, would you, would you take success? Would you take blessing if it meant that you didn't have the Lord's presence? Would you be willing to be given the land that was promised to your, to your ancestors, to be given all the blessings of relationship with God minus the relationship with God. And I love how the people have enough wisdom and enough insight to understand in verse 4 that when the Lord says, go and I will give it to you, but I'm not going with you, that the, the people understand this is a disastrous word. To receive the land of blessing, to receive the land of promise, but not have the one who promised them the land would actually be a curse. Would be a curse. They realize it for what it is. So, ask yourself, how many American Christians would be satisfied if they could get their normal life back, but if it also meant we didn't have the Lord's presence? Would you find that to be an appealing offer? Well, and of course, we all know the Sunday school answer, which is no. Of course, that's not an appealing offer. But in your heart of hearts, which do you desire more? Which do you truly, deep down, desire more? A healthy United States or the Lord's presence? Whom will we serve? Will we serve Pharaoh or will we serve the Lord? Well, that raises the question for us, and it's a question that Exodus answers. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? First of all, the Lord is the self-existent one. Going back to chapter 3 and the interaction between Moses and the Lord at the burning bush, chapter 3, verses 13 and following, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Lord is the self-existent one. He's the I am. You see, he's, he's 
distinct from us. He's very different from us. We derive our existence and we derive our identity from our creator, our relationship to God. That's where we draw our identity. But God's identity and God's existence have always been. And they're not derived from a relationship to anyone else. He's self-existent. He is the I am. And likewise, he's not limited by time. We, we are limited by time. We had a, an ultimate beginning and we will have an earthly end. We're bound by time. We're limited by time. But God is not limited by time. He always is. Yesterday, he is I am. And today, he is I am. And tomorrow, he is I am. He's not bound by time. He's not limited in that way. He's the self-existent one. And so, of course, the covenant name Yahweh is related to that statement where he says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. That's his name. That's Yahweh. That's his covenant name, his self-existent name. So he's the self-existent one, but he's also the self-revealing one. Listen to these words. From chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He, he reveals himself. He reveals himself, of, of course, in his word, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But he also reveals himself in his relationship, in his acting in history on behalf of his people, in his redemptive work in the history of the nation of Israel. He redeal, reveals himself and who he really is. You see, he acts in history. He's not just an idea. He's not just a conception out there. He acts in history, and particularly when we look in Scripture, we see him acting in the history of the nation of Israel, and thus he reveals to us who he is. He is the self-revealing one. He's the self-existent one. He's the self-revealing one. And then thirdly, he's the self-determined one. Going back to chapter 33, chapter 33, a very fascinating incident Again, this happens right after the golden calf incident and right after the disastrous word that was spoken before uh, earlier on in chapter 33. And here you have this interaction between Moses and the Lord in chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And you know what the Lord said. You know what the Lord did. Do you know what he said? And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And we're familiar with the incident. We're familiar with what he says will happen, that you can't see me and look at me and live. So you can just see my hind parts and I'll, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you up and, and you'll be able to see. We're, we're familiar with that story. We're familiar with that, with that happening, with that incident. But I want to listen to his words. What the Lord says, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
God is self-determined. He's not beholden to anyone. He's not indebted to anyone as if he must repay someone for what they have done. He determines whom he will show mercy and to whom he will be gracious. The determination of who will receive his mercy and who will receive his compassion is rooted in not in the the merit of the individual or not in the value even of the individual. The identity of who will receive that benefit from him is rooted in who he is, who the Lord is. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He's the self-determined one. And likewise, there is no standard of right and wrong to which the Lord must measure up as if there's an external standard that he, if he's going to be good and right, he must do good and right things according to a standard outside of himself that he measures up to. There is no standard outside of him that he measures up to. All true standards come from him. They come from who he is. What the Lord chooses and does is right and it's worthy precisely because it is the Lord who chooses and does that thing. There is no standard external to God. All true standards are drawn from Him. He's the self-determined one. And so this brings us to a point of application. We need to ask ourselves an honest question. Does does our definition of who the Lord is come from the Bible? Or does it come from our own ideas? When you, when you read the Bible and you run across a passage, a description of God in there or of God's actions that, 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 that makes you uncomfortable or that causes you to feel like you need to explain that thing away, when you do that, you have just run, run across a place where you define God by your own ideas instead of what Scripture says. And the challenge for us, particularly as we read difficult places uh, like these passages in Exodus and many, many other places, the difficulty, the challenge for us is not to continue and insist upon my definition of what God must be like because I've got some external standard that I'm holding God up to and measuring God against that external standard. When I run across that place, the challenge for me instead is to be humble before the text and humble before God's description of Himself, the way He's communicated Himself to me, and repent and confess that He is God, and I am not, and I will believe Him according to His Word. That's the challenge for me, and that's the challenge for you, is to believe God to be who He says He is in His Word, rather than my own conception that I have of who he is. And who does Exodus reveal the Lord to be? Well, he's the self-existent I am. And he's the self-revealing redeemer of Israel. And he's the gloriously self-determined one who is gracious. That brings us to another key question. How is it even possible for the people to obey Yahweh because they are locked in chains. 
They're so busy gathering straw and making brick and serving Pharaoh. They're so busy serving in Egypt. They don't have time. They're not able. How, how is it even possible for them to worship the Lord? Well, very quickly, he, he sets them free. The Lord sets them free. He takes these enslaving gods of, of theirs that they're serving under, the gods of the Egyptians, and he destroys them so that the enslaving gods are destroyed. And of course, perhaps the most famous incident, uh, uh, series of circumstances that happens in the book of Exodus, of course, is the ten plagues. And if you look at those plagues, each of those is a direct attack by Yahweh on the false gods of the people, demonstrating that he himself is God, he himself is sovereign, he himself is all-powerful, and they are nothing. What he's doing is he is crushing the gods of the people who are holding his people captive. And so these enslaving gods of the Egyptians are destroyed. And of course, the final and worst plague is the death of the firstborn, which even affects the family of Pharaoh himself, who is supposed to be deity and his family should be protected and he should certainly be able to protect his heir but he's not able to because he's not actually deity. And so those enslaving gods are destroyed. And secondly, the enslaved people are redeemed. In those events following that situation, uh, and particularly as a result of the death of the firstborn, the people are driven out of the land. Actually, Pharaoh commands them to leave, and they leave with the blessing and even the wealth of the Egyptians who are taking care of them, had, had been, who had been holding them in captivity. Now they bless them with, uh, with things, possessions, wealth, and they send them on their way. They want them out of there. The enslaved people are redeemed. And this brings us to a point of application for us, a question for us, something for us to ponder that right now in our circumstances that we find ourselves in in this world and in our world, it might be that Yahweh is threatening the very gods that have enslaved many of us. What are the American gods? Well, they're numerous. Financial security, liberty, wealth, our earthly kingdoms. And I could go on and on and on about these American gods. And frankly, many of those things are good and they're right in themselves. The problem is, for many of us, they have so captured our hearts and so captured our affections that we now serve them more than we serve the Lord. So ask yourself in this time, as you're watching the news and as you're dealing with loss, and ask yourself this question. What am I grieving or fearing the loss of the most right now in this time with financial threat? with threat to health, with threat to our way of life? What are you grieving the loss of the most? What do you fear the loss of the most? Your answer to that question probably identifies the God that, in, that is enslaving you. It's holding you captive, and it may be. It may be that the Lord is being merciful and gracious to you, merciful and gracious to me, in destroying that God that we've been serving.
So we might need to think about our circumstances a little bit differently. We might need to look at them and see see our circumstances now in light of what we read in the book of Exodus. So we have an enslaved people who are redeemed. And then finally, the redeemed people are instructed. As you get to chapters 19 and 20 and 21 and on through 24, uh, this section, we have the, the, what's called the book of the covenant. And this is, this is Yahweh spelling out for his people how now they are supposed to, to live, how they are to, are to behave, how they are to treat one another, how they are to <clears throat> worship him. Because he's instructing them. He doesn't want to rely upon their own ideas for how they should serve him or how they should treat one another or, or how they should live as a nation or live as a people. He gives them very specific instructions. And this is, this is what churches should be doing as well, by the way, is looking into Scripture to find out how we should be serving the Lord. We don't serve the Lord based upon our ideas. We don't worship Him based upon what seems good to us. If we worshiped Him based upon what seemed good to us just in our own minds, Sunday morning would look very different. It would look more like a concert because that's very enjoyable. It would probably be more like a a pep talk, um, a motivational speech by someone who would do a whole lot better job at motivational speaking than I could ever do it, it certainly wouldn't look like a call to repentance. It wouldn't look like a service where the Lord is the center of all things. So we need to take our instruction. We need to be instructed by God from His Word on how we are to worship and serve Him. So that's how it's even possible for the people to worship Him. It's because they've been redeemed. They've been taken out of that land. Those gods that were holding them captive have been destroyed. They've been redeemed, they've been brought out, and now they've been instructed. And so the question finally is for us, how must they worship the Lord? How must we worship the Lord? And there's no shortage of information on this, even just in the book of Exodus. First of all, it must be according to Revelation. When the people have been brought out of the land, they've been brought to the mountain, and you get to chapter 19 of Exodus, and of course, Being a good Bible student, you know that the Ten Commandments come in chapter 20. But here you have a statement. Uh, The beginning of that conversation starts in chapter 19, and that's why we read that earlier in the service. But the Lord is telling them that worship and service to Him must be done according to Revelation. We have the giving of the Ten Commandments right there. We have chapter after chapter on instruction of how to build the tabernacle, which is the place they are to go to worship the Lord. And so there's very specific instruction. There's revelation given on how they are to worship. And as the instructions are given about the tabernacle that's going to travel around with them, that's going to be the location where they're going to meet with the Lord, there are special instructions, special attention is paid to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the testimony. Listen to this from chapter 25. Chapter 25, verses 20. Through 22, we read these words describing the the building and the formation and the putting together of the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim and all that. We read this in verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. 
There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. He's very, very specific of how he wants them to worship. And it's specifically centered around the testimony, which is placed inside the ark that's covered over with the mercy seat, that there's specific guidance that we are to worship God according to revelation, according to the way he has told us to do so. And secondly, we are to worship the Lord absolutely exclusively. Absolutely exclusively, we are to worship the Lord. You remember the first commandment back in chapter 20? You shall have no other gods before me. And he says, likewise, farther on in, in chapter uh, 20 and verse 23, he says, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. And when you go into the land, the people there will have gods, and you are not to take those gods as your own. You're not even to take their name upon your lips. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So they are to worship Yahweh alone and no one else and nothing else. They are to worship him absolutely exclusively. And now we get to this terrible chapter, chapter 32, where we see this awful example of how not to worship Yahweh. Chapter 32, you'll want to turn there. You want to uh, think through this passage a little bit. Starting in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain because the Lord was up on the mountain speaking with the Lord, had been there a very long time. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so the people decide they need to have something different. They're, they're not content with this Moses who now has been on the mountain for weeks. He's been up there a long time. And so they command Aaron, hey, make gods to go for us. Make images for us that we can bow down to, that we can see, that we can identify, that we can recognize, that we can follow. Make gods for us. And Aaron fashions gold from their jewelry. He fashions that into a golden calf. And they say, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so having just experienced the plagues, the the powerful working of God in delivering them, having just experienced the, the greatest of the plagues, the, the death of the firstborn, which is a, a, a terrible and memorable event, but they were spared from it because of the Passover. Having just experienced that, and then having been brought up to the Red Sea and then miraculously taken through it, and the armies destroyed after them, after all of that, they can point to a golden calf and say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They're worshiping the Lord in a, in a way in, entirely different from what they've been instructed to do. They're worshiping Him in a way that is entirely different from all that He has revealed Himself, even just in His actions. And yet they're going to worship the Lord in this way. And somehow in their own minds, throughout all of this, they think they're still worshiping Yahweh. 
in some way, Yahweh is mixed up in this in their minds. When Aaron makes the calf and he announces the next day's worship, listen to what he says in verse 5. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. After having made the calf. After having said, these are your gods that have brought you up and you're going to follow after them. Somehow it's connected in his mind. They're still worshiping Yahweh. But they're doing so in a pagan way. They're doing so in a way they never heard from the Lord. And so that brings us to a question about our own circumstances that we find ourselves in. I said earlier that the faithful response to calamity is repentance. And so might it be that the world events that are going on right now, among all the other things that God is doing, might it be that those world events are a call for the church to repent from her idolatry. Too many pastors are preaching a sub-biblical form of Christianity and too many Christians are holding to a sub-biblical form of Christianity. You see, the Bible teaches that God is far holier and He's far more glorious and wondrous than we can imagine. He's, he's beyond us. He's other. He's not our buddy. He is the holy and exalted creator of all things, and He is to be worshipped. He is to be adored. He is the center of all things. The Bible makes it very clear that we, on the other hand, are not the center of all things. And that's an offensive message nowadays, by the way. Probably to many people who are not watching this, if you... Uh, if you were to go and talk to them, you would find that they really are pretty sure they are the center of the world. And I like to joke that I think I am too, but that's me confessing sin. Because in some ways I do think I'm the center of all things. But the Bible makes it very clear that, that we are not the center of all things. God is the center of all things. And especially in our culture, right now, we, we have fashioned a world that is designed to worship and serve me. That is our culture. That is our value. But the Bible teaches that, that on the other hand, we were, we were created from dirt. And we were created from dirt to serve Almighty God. But you know your Bible history. And you know that though we were created from dirt to serve Almighty God, yet we responded not in service to Almighty God, but instead in rebellion against Him. We wanted to be like Him. And so we rebelled against His commands. We went the other direction and we became rebels. And of course, God had every right to destroy us. Right then, He could have destroyed us. He would have had every right to destroy us as His creation. But He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Starting that very moment, He began to tell us about events that would culminate in our redemption. Rather than our destruction, culminate in our redemption. God began immediately to work to redeem a people for himself. He put those events into play. He began to, to enact uh, these things in the history of the nation of Israel, telling them about them beforehand, identifying them as they happened, which all leads up to, culminates in him sending his son who would walk in obedience where, where we have walked in rebellion. And yet, though he was obedient, yet he would go and bear the wrath of God for our rebellion. 
so that he would go to the cross. He would suffer death on the cross so that all who would believe in him would receive the benefit of being reconciled to God. And there are corrections in that message for our culture today. So often we think that, I say we in American culture and very often in churches, there's a sense in which we think we can do the things it takes to please God. And when we think those thoughts, we are forgetting two things. We are forgetting how high and lifted up God is, that he's, he's unattainable in his purity and holiness. And we're forgetting how fallen we are. And so when we, when we think that somehow there's something we can do as fallen man to make God pleased with us, to win him over to our side, we're forgetting both of those things. We are both lowering God down in his standard and we are raising ourselves up in our own estimation. And so just the gospel message itself is a correction to our culture and it's a correction to, to many of the churches in our culture. But it goes farther than that. Here is where so much of modern Christianity is sub-biblical. They think that God did all of this redemptive work because we are the center of the world. Because we are the center of all things. It's all about me. God did it because I'm the center. That's the thought. That's the belief deep down. They, they would never put it in those words because they know that's wrong and they know the Sunday school answer. But, but really, it's about me and it's about what I get. It's about the benefit that comes to me. But what they don't understand is the biblical message that God does this because he is the center of the world. Just like we learned looking through very quickly the book of Exodus, just like God's purpose for rescuing Israel from Egypt was so that they would serve Yahweh, He rescued them from that service to service to Him. Just in the same way, so now, this redemption that's ours in Christ is for the purpose of our being made into a kingdom of priests to serve Him. We are saved and we have these enormous benefits. We, we have peace with God. We have joy in our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have blessings all around us. We have a, a relationship with God that's been restored. But that's not the primary blessing. That's not the end of it. As if benefiting me was all God had in mind. No, he, he benefits me. And He does so for the purpose of glory to Him for the purpose of service to Him, for the purpose of His perfections, who He really is being made known better in the world. And so I'm not the end of all things. I'm not the center of all things. Even my redemption, even my salvation, ultimately in the end is about Him. It's about glorifying Him. It's about His worthiness, His perfection being put on display. And folks, the church today needs to repent of worshiping itself. And it needs to give God the glory that is due to Him. That this is about Him. And it's not primarily about me. He has redeemed us from our sin. And He has reconciled us to Himself. So that we will give Him that glory. So that we will put on display who He really is. So that our lives will reflect this redeemed life, what it means to be the recipient of God's grace and the recipient of God's mercy so that that's put on display before the world. 
in the face of calamity, the faithful respond in repentance. And my prayer this morning is that God would grant us true repentance in these ways and in others at this time. Let's pray. Father, on one hand, this is a sobering uh, message. It's a sobering message about our need for repentance, my need for repentance, that, that I have gotten it into my mind that the end goal of you saving me is so I can have these blessings, so I can enjoy these blessings. Father, I do have these blessings of salvation. I have peace with you, your spirit living within me. I have the forgiveness of sins. I have the righteousness of Christ applied to my account. I can come and talk to you in this way. I am, I am blessed. I do indeed have these blessings. And I enjoy these blessings. But that is not the ultimate goal. That is not the ultimate end. Glory to you. Service to you. Worship of you is the ultimate end. And so, Father, I repent. I repent of thinking that you have saved me because I'm the sinner of all things. I don't, I don't, I would never, I would never say that. But in my actions and in my affections and in my daily habits, in my values, it's true. And I confess it as sin as idolatry. Father, I pray that at this time, which is Palm Sunday, which is normally a, a remembrance of the, the worship, the laying down of the palm branches, the celebrating of the king coming into the city. But many of us are like those people laying down the palm branches because they are welcoming a Messiah not as He actually is, not for what He will actually do, not loving Him for, for the Savior that He really is, but loving Him and bowing down to Him and saying wonderful things about Him because of what they want Him to be, a servant to them. And so it's fitting that on this Palm Sunday we be called to repentance. Father, I pray that you would take your word that we've discussed this morning, that you would do your work in our hearts by your Spirit, that we would look and see where we have been worshiping falsely, where we have been wavering in our service to you and in, in pondering, uh, abandoning ship, where we have loved the blessing that you give us more than you, the blesser. Father, I ask that you'd work in our hearts, even during this difficult time in our world. We do pray that you would 
end this calamity that's going on, that things would get back to normal. We pray that, that our economy would do well, that, that, uh, that there would be no more loss of life, that we would find a way to, to deal with this, to overcome it, that this tiny little bug that has, that has turned the world upside down would, would be destroyed. We do pray for those things. We ask that you would do that. We ask that you'd work abundantly, miraculously, and in powerful ways to do that. But while we are here, while we face difficulty, I pray that you would work repentance in your people. Father, we pray that you would bless us this way, this week. In Jesus' name, amen.